know who asked me, but it's okay. <laughs> All right, tonight we're going to be looking over the last five verses of Matthew chapter 16. Last five verses of Matthew 16. That's going to be starting in verse 24, reading to the end of uh, 16 is going to be 29. So let's all turn our Bibles. And as we're getting there, who can tell me what is going on in the second half of Matthew 16? Specifically, we've seen two events that happened at the end here, right before my section. So don't get ahead of us. This past two events. If you're unsure, just look at the headings. I'm, I'm sure most of you have a Bible. It probably says, hey, here's a synopsis of what's happening in these two verses. Yeah. That's one of them. That's right, exactly. So first we had Peter's confession of Christ. And you know, we, we take that for granted, don't we, in our own spiritual walk? Like, obviously, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is something that's a no-brainer for us. Uh, but this was a, an amazing, profound declaration from Peter that Jesus is the Christ. But Peter... Uh, he, you know, he didn't have all the things that we take for granted in our spiritual walk. You know, he had the knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, he had what he observed firsthand as he watched Jesus. And yet even then, at the end of that section, we see that Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter, because it's not flesh and blood that have revealed these things to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So even though Peter saw this directly, it had to be revealed to him by God. And yes, the other thing... He said, do you hear the second thing Nico said? Here's the second thing that happened in the section. Right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, what does he do, Ian? Yeah, that happens. And what happened is part of that. Keep going. Christ rebuked Peter because... Uh, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, oh, hey, 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 man. Look, we, we, all, we all get those days down the jumps, but this is not appropriate. You do not need to be saying, I'm going to die, and then come back to life three days. And of course, uh, Jesus rebukes him. Yes, in fact, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And we talked about this previously, but Oftentimes, the disciples, they had their minds on an earthly Messiah, didn't they? they? They wanted the Messiah to come, yes, but they wanted him to come the way they wanted him to come. They wanted him to be that earthly Savior, that he'd free them from Roman rule, from the rule of all foreign oppression, and he'd set up a kingdom, a messianic line that would sit on the throne of David to rule for all time. And we see the disciples continue to have this mindset. It's not just Peter here. He continues to have it uh, from the feeding of the 5,000, where they were ready to forcibly make Jesus the Messiah and sit on the throne of David. Uh, we see it as they're traveling to Jerusalem for the last time, when there's a city, and they want to stay there overnight. And the city says, no, you guys are Jewish. Uh, we see what's up. And they say, hey, God, do you want us to call down fire on this city? Because they wouldn't let you stay here. Of course, Jesus says, no, don't be silly. Don't do that. No. Uh, and we see that they do this as Jesus is doing his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They, they, they are the ones who begin shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna. So the disciples, and specifically Peter in this passage, definitely had an earthly mindset, mindset about Messiah and what his role was supposed to be. And so Jesus, he takes this moment of rebuking Peter, 
and he turns it into a broader teaching lesson uh, for his disciples and by extension for us as well. So hopefully everyone has had plenty of time to get to Matthew 16. Let's go and read our passage for tonight. This is Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through uh, 28, or 29 rather, to close out this chapter. Oh yeah, it's 20. Uh, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going, uh, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man's coming in his kingdom. So I've titled this lesson for tonight, uh, Who is Your King? Who is your king? This is the central issue Jesus is going to be talking about in this passage. And he's going to work through this question in four sections. The first thing Jesus is going to do is he's going to go over the requirements for him to be your king. You know, the disciples have said, they've recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, that's great that you recognize it, but if that is actually the case, there's some requirements. And it's true for them, it's going to be true for us as well as Christians. Then he's going to explain the absolute empty pursuit of making yourself king. Third, he's going to tell us the cost of making yourself king. And finally, he's going to give proof that you should make Christ your king. And as Jesus goes through these four points, we're going to see this central theme worked out, a simple thought. Uh, And that is, if Christ is your king, you will deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus. So let's go over each of these four points, starting at the very beginning, as Jesus goes over the requirements for Christ to be your king. Obviously, this is the first point. If you're doing an outline, the requirements for Christ to be your king. Verse 24, it says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So I want you to really think about the events that led up to this sentence that Jesus just said. We, we, we went over it. We talked about it. But really stop and think just for a minute. Peter proclaims that Christ is who? Who does Peter proclaim Christ to be? A girl on this side. I know you guys have been paying attention. Who does, Christ pro- who does Peter proclaim that Christ is? He says, you are the... Yes, the Christ, the Son of the Son of the Living God. Yeah, you're on the right path, Joy. Don't worry about it. You got it. Yeah, Peter just said, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And then shortly after, maybe immediately, maybe a couple days, maybe a couple weeks, Peter pulls aside, and who does he rebuke? Who is the Son of the Living God? Imagine that just for a second. He just confessed that Jesus is God. And he pulls him aside and says, God, you're wrong to say this. Can you all imagine this? Can you imagine if, if you did this? Everyone should be nodding their heads, yes. Because absolutely everyone last, every last one of us in here does so. Each and every one of us pulls God aside and says, hey, you don't know what you're doing. Every time I grumble and complain, 
crying and complaining to God that I don't think you know what you're doing. Because clearly, God, if you knew what you were doing, you would be doing it my way. And I don't trust him. And I grumble and I complain and I fuss. We've all been guilty of this at some point. And you know, for example, whenever I fail to treat my brother or my sister the way I should, the way Taylor told she did this week, so when I don't do what Taylor does, uh, I, I'm putting my own wants and desires first. You know, I, I'm, I'm demonstrating that I think God is wrong when he tells me in Philippians 2, 3 to consider one another as more important than yourself. Like, no, God must be wrong. I am the most important. That's why my brother is annoying me right now. That's why my sister needs to leave me alone. She needs to speak to me. We have all been guilty of this at some point or another, of placing what we want as being the most important thing in our lives. We worship ourselves rather than worshiping God. And when we do it, it's like we're pulling God aside. And, we're, and it's like we're rebuking him, saying, you just don't understand. You're doing it wrong. And Jesus is fully aware of this, so he lays out the truth for us in no uncertain terms whatsoever. He says, if anyone, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. You know, we live in a time when absolute truths are frowned upon, don't we? Like, we, we don't like it when we say, this is absolutely the way it is. We like to say, no, you know what? This is my truth. My truth is this. And maybe that's not your truth, but it is my truth, and you need to respect my truth. We live in a time when teachers are disciplined for telling their students that they're not cats. And that one and one does not, in fact, equal meow. Like, literally, teachers are put on probation for saying you're not a cat. You have to answer this question using a human voice. We hate a world of absolute, or we live in a world that hates absolute truth. But Jesus is telling his disciples, you say that I'm Messiah, that I am your king, but am I really your king? And this is hands down one of, if not the most important question each and every one of us is going to ask. From the youngest person in here to the oldest leader in here, is Christ your king? Because here in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus is going to lay out two simple truths that will describe every single person who has ever been a believer, is currently a believer, or ever will become a believer in the future. If anyone here tonight claims that Jesus is your personal king, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to heaven and have forgiveness for our sins, then these two truths absolutely will describe you. You will deny yourself, and you will pick up your cross and follow after Jesus. And yes, I, I know that sounds like three things, but that's two. You'll see. It's two. So let's look at these two things, starting with denying yourself. Who here... You can tell me, what does it mean to deny yourself? Or what do you think it means to deny yourself? Do you think it's like, hey, I'm not going to have this bowl of ice cream? You know, I'm not going to eat meat on certain days of the week. What, what do you think? Go ahead. Three out of three are there? Million? Okay, I like that one. Yeah, slap your friends on the ice cream. Anyone else? Go ahead, Fox. Clarity, you have one? Exactly, yeah. It, it, it's not just saying, I'm not going to eat meat on certain days. 
or I'm not going to turn on air conditioning. I need to live in a, you know, I, I need to sit in a desert somewhere on top of this giant rock, and I need to meditate all day. No, that's not, that's not it. That's asceticism. Uh, it's a false religious mindset that says, by denying myself basic things, I will somehow be more religious than anyone else. Uh, to deny ourselves is absolutely to put away your own desires. And, and we see this based on the flow of the passage. If you look in, uh, at Jesus rebuking Peter in verse 23, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of who? Things of what? Yeah. Things of man. Exactly. The things of man. So whenever we're talking about denying ourselves, it means to stop setting your minds on earthly things and on your own self-centered wants, your own desires, and instead set your mind on God's will for your life. I love the way Hebrews 12 puts this concept of denying ourselves. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Go ahead and turn there, if you will. Hebrews 12, verse 1. The focus of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And through the course of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews discusses how Christ is superior to the angels, to the law, to the prophets, to Moses, to the visible high priest, with everything that came before, Christ is superior. And because he is superior, the new covenant, the covenant of faith that Jesus has brought about, is also superior to the Old Testament covenant of the law. And as he works through this, we finally get to chapter 11. He says, look, all the Old Testament people of the past that are, are so amazing. They were just incredible witnesses for God. People like Moses and Abraham, like Gideon. They did everything they did in faith, looking forward to a promise that would someday come. Then he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says that if all those he just referenced in chapter 11, if all of them could have faith in a promise that they wouldn't see, that was far away. They didn't know when it was coming, but they trusted that God would keep his promise. If all those Old Testament people could trust and have faith in that someday promise, then surely we, who have seen the reality of that promise, can do what? And according to Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, we can lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus says that if you will truly have him as your king, you will deny yourself, this is exactly what he means. That you will deny the sin that clings to us so closely. And sin does cling so closely, doesn't it? Each one of us has that sin that it's just really hard for us to overcome. And, and I, I actually want that to be a point of encouragement for you. Like, sin is hard to overcome. We're never going to be perfect in this life. We always continue to strive, never being content with where we are, but pushing forward. But when you're struggling with that sin, find someone to support you. And by all means, continue to fight and struggle with it. But don't be discouraged, because you will never be, never be free of sin in this life. We all have that sin that clings to us. And, you know, maybe it's just being prideful. You know, hey, I, I know a lot more than that. My knowledge of the Bible, wow, 
is so much better than my spouse. I'm pretty awesome. You know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's your looks. Got some muy guapo here. Maybe it's your sports ability. Maybe you're sinners just because you love the gospel. Oh, man. You get together every Wednesday or Sunday. Let me tell you what's going on in this person's life who isn't here. And maybe they're less so-called plight sins. You know, those, those things, those have, we, we call them plight sins. It's stupid, but that's what people like to call them. But then there's less so-called plight sins. The ones that everyone, even the world goes, that is wrong. Sins like anger. Maybe you're an angry, angry person. You know, the second you're alone with your siblings, they're rocked up. They're going to be mad at the great Maybe it's just that you're ungrateful. You want someone else to have. You want that person not to have the person you get to. You get mad. They're not yours. Christ is saying in Matthew 16 that if you really, really your king, you're going to reject these things. The sin that clings so closely to you. That sin that you just don't want to give up sometimes. You're going to deny that. You say, no. Christ has called me to be holy as he is holy. I reject this sin. And you're not going to be perfect. You're not. But you're going to have a time in your life where you're rejecting this sin. Where you're denying yourself. And we know this for a fact because, guys, you know, I, I wish we could be free from sin the moment we were saved. I wish, as Christians, we'd never fall into patterns of long-time sin. But we know in Matthew 18 there's a thing called church discipline. If long-time sin wasn't something that each of us may have to struggle with, there would be no church discipline topic because we wouldn't struggle with it. The important thing, however, is that if Christ is your king, when someone comes up to you and they say, Kevin, you're in sin for this reason, if, you're, if Christ is truly your king, your response is to go, you're right. Please help me. If Christ is not your king, you're going to say, you're wrong. That passage of the Bible actually isn't applicable. You know, it was written to that society. It was written for this culture. But it's not accurate anymore. And so I can keep doing this. I can live with my girlfriend. I don't have to. I don't have to get married. Or I can live with my boyfriend. I choose my sin. That's going to be the response of the person that hasn't made Christ their king. But the one who has made Christ their king will deny themselves, setting aside our desires to glorify ourselves and instead glorify Christ. We will pick up our cross and follow Jesus, which is the second thing anyone who is a follower of Jesus is going to do. Like I said earlier, I know that sounds like two things. You one, pick up your cross, and you two, follow Jesus. But anyone who heard Jesus say this at this time would have understood the mental image he was using. He's using the image of what? Picking up your cross. And there's something kind of major happening in the Bible about crosses. What, what was it? Go up. Yeah. Yeah, it's the image of crucifixion. So let's say I'm a condemned criminal. Can I pick up my cross and do nothing? No, no, that wasn't going to be an option. You were going to be walking. If you weren't, you would be beaten. I mean... This was, this was a continuous thing. You picked up your cross and you went where they wanted you to go. It was one 
Even though there are two parts to it, it is one action. Now I want you to look at the end of verse 24. Whose cross are you picking up? Whose cross are you picking up? Your cross, yes. Uh, we're not picking up Jesus' cross. We can't pick up Jesus' cross. Jesus' cross was to bear all the weight of God's wrath for my sin. The whole reason Jesus had to bear that cross was because I could not bear that cross. That's the whole point. No, we have been called to pick up our cross. And this is actually the second time in Matthew that Jesus has made this reference to the fact that anyone who claims to be a believer will pick up their cross and follow him. Uh, The first time is found in Matthew 10, 38. Let me read this uh, section very very quickly. Feel free to put it there in your Bible if you think you can get there quick enough. It's Matthew 10, uh, and I'm going to be starting in verse 34 and reading through verse 39. What's going on here is that Jesus is about to send the 12 disciples out on their first missionary journey. And he warns them about many things, about there's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, And one of the things he says as he's sending them out, he says, verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life in my sake will find it. Now look at the list of people Jesus gives here in Matthew 10. These are loved ones. These are people that are going to be the closest people to you in your life. Your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your sons, your daughters. And he says that if you love them more than Christ, if you say, Ooh, I mean, I would follow Jesus, but my brother's dead. And I'm worried that if I follow Jesus, I'm going to lose that relationship with my brother. Or I'm worried that if I even speak out and say, Hey, you're in sin. I'm going to lose that relationship with my brother, so I'm going to be silent. Or maybe you go, I would believe in Jesus, but if I did that, my family would disown me. I can't believe in Jesus. I can't let them know I believe in Jesus. I don't want to lose that. When you combine that with tonight's passage in Matthew 16, we're setting aside our desires to focus on God's desires, it becomes clear that the point of this passage, the point that Jesus is making is not that we need to be ready to endure hard times when it talks about picking up our cross. This isn't some reference to like, the Christian life is hard. It, it, it is, okay? <laughs> it, it is. There's going to be times when it is very difficult to be a Christian. But that's not the point Jesus is making. The point Jesus is making is that you have to be willing to figuratively, figuratively crucify the person you were. To lose everything about who you used to be. Not just, not just your, your desires, but even your relationships. Everything about that person, you have to be willing to let go if you are truly making Christ your king. I love the way Paul puts this in Galatians 2.20 when he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
In the life I live, or the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Does that describe you today? Now I've spent most of my time on this first point in the first verse because there is no more important question for anyone else, for anyone take on. Is Jesus your King? Now, for those who do not have Jesus as their King, having just heard Jesus state that absolutely anyone who wants to follow Him will deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow Him, there's a natural response to this. And that response is, why? Why? I mean, why shouldn't I pursue worldly pleasures? Why shouldn't I try to make the most money I can? It doesn't matter if I have to cheat people. It doesn't matter if other people have to suffer as long as I get the most that I can get out of this life. So why should I deny myself? Well, Jesus answers that, and he does it using three four statements. That is F-O-R, not F-O-U-R. Three four statements. The first two are going to illustrate the empty pursuit of making yourself king of your life. And the last four statements will show the cost of making yourself king. So I want us to look at the first two four statements. And this is going to be point two on our outline, the empty pursuit of making yourself king. And it's in verses 25 to 26. Why should you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? Verse 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In rejecting Christ, and making yourself king of your own life, the first thing people often go to, the first excuse, is that of fear. Uh, the fear of persecution. The fear of even death. They think that if they follow Christ, it might cost them their jobs. It might cost them friendships. It might cost them their very life. And conversely, they think as long as they don't follow Jesus, they're going to be safe. And there's even a growing movement right now that says, you know what? I can do whatever I want right now because love wins out in the end. I'm going to get a little slap on the wrist from God. I'll spend a couple days in hell, and then I get to go to heaven because God's love is so great, surely no one could suffer for all time and all eternity. And there's an element of truthfulness to the way they think. Not about God's love winning out in the end. That's all. They're right in thinking that following Christ can be dangerous to them. According to the Open Doors World Watch list, in 2018, there were 2,856 Christians killed because they believed in Jesus. That works out to about eight Christians killed every single day. The next year, in 2019, there were 13 Christians killed every day. An increase of 60%. 4,761 Christians killed over the course of the year 2019. Last year, in the year 20, 2021, the report showed that the number of Christians had increased to 16 
16% every day in this country. Over the course of three years, the number of Christians killed each year doubled. And the open doors watch this actually think that these numbers are grossly underreported. Because there are closed countries where reporting isn't accurate, places like uh, North Korea or Afghanistan. And there's areas of high conflict, such as Somalia and Nigeria, where they think that the actual numbers of Christians killed uh, is much higher than militant Islam in general. In fact, in Nigeria, uh, that accounted for 50%. 50% of Christians who died in the year 2018. Following Christ, perhaps there will even be less of them dead. We have missionaries from our sending church who have been in places like this who boldly proclaim the word of God and it is at risk of their life. But Christ's response to this is that if you're afraid that following him will cost you your life and so you don't want to do it, you've got it all backwards. You've got it all backwards. Anyone who tries to keep their life safe in this life by serving themselves will find uh, will find that they have lost it all when they stand before Christ in the life to come. And any, anyone who gives their all, who gives their life in following Christ in this life, will find that Christ has carefully preserved their life in the life to come. Beyond being afraid of losing your life, Jesus addresses a second reason some people might choose to deny him, might try to make themselves king of their own lives. Uh, and that is because they love the material things of this world more than they love Christ. Look again at verse 26. It says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? But maybe, maybe the fear of dying isn't something that you give up. I mean, honestly, it, it doesn't get me that much. My night terrors doesn't get that much. Fear of dying? No, I don't care about that. We live in a time of unparalleled luxury. Especially here in Texas. I mean, it is just, throughout all human history, and in the world right now, it boggles my mind how much we have. Access to health care. Access to clean running water. Access to food from around the world. Heating, cooling. I mean, th- this is just basic necessities. And then beyond that, access to uh, things like population density. I mean, here in Texas, we can be anywhere across the state, and we got plenty of land. A lot of people don't get that. We have things like access to technology. Texas is a, a hub of technology. People are moving in here from all over the place so they can set up their businesses. Access to frivolous things like entertainment. I mean, we live in a glut of just constant bombardment from all the amazing things we have. So maybe it's, it's not the fear of death that keeps us from Christ. Maybe it is, in fact, all the things that are around us that draw us to worship ourselves, the pursuit of things. We want to make sure that we have more and more of it. We want to make sure we have the latest shoes, the latest handbag. We want to make sure that uh, we've seen the latest movies, that we, we have all the latest things. Just more and more, I've got to have it. I've got to have it. Just garbage waiting to burn. It's all just garbage. 
And that doesn't mean it's wrong to have it. It just means we have to recognize that it's garbage. I mean, when Jesus returns, no amount of fancy shoes, no tablet that can do fun, amazing things is going to be important. It's all going to be destroyed. And not one of it's going to remain. If this is where you're at, where you would rather be able to pursue whatever it is you think will make you the big bucks, whatever your hustle is, if that's the focus of your life, Jesus has a question for you. Why? What's the point? I mean, what is the point in owning the entire world if you're just going to go to hell? Think about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. They are hands down the richest people who are currently alive in the world. Elon Musk is worth $228 billion. He just bought Twitter for $44 billion. And according to the agreement, he's putting in $21 billion of his own money. Because, hey, why not? It's just $21 billion. Jeff Bezos is worth $144 billion. But neither of them believe in Christ. When they die, what use will their great wealth be to them? The answer is, there will be no use of all. In fact, in Luke 12, 13-21, Jesus relates a parable of this foolish rich man. And in the parable, he explains how there's a very, very wealthy man. He says, I have so much. I can't hold it all. So I'm going to tear down my existing buildings, and I'm going to make even bigger and better ones to hold all my grain and all my goods. And at the end of the parable, God's response to him is to say, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The pursuit of wealth over following Christ, the pursuit of your life over following Christ, is all so vain. To make yourself king of your life, to deny Christ, to worship yourself, is to pursue empty things. Think about King Solomon. He was the wisest and the richest man that has ever lived or ever will live. Musk wishes he had the wealth that Solomon had. And yet, in Ecclesiastes, we see that at the end of his life, having done everything that can bring you pleasure in this world, every carnal, fleshly desire, he says, I tried it. I tried wealth. I tried things that delight the eye. It didn't make me happy. I did it. I kept nothing from me. And you know what he says about it all? He says it was vanity. Vanity of vanities. All of it was vanity. It was worthless. And it comes at such a high cost. And this is point three on your outline. The cost of making yourself king. Why should you deny yourself? Take up your cross and follow Jesus? In 1 Kings 7, we read, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. It's not just that making yourself king is empty, leads to empty pursuits. It's that making yourself king comes at the cost of your very soul for all eternity. And this is why the question of who's your king is so vitally important. Hell is not a temporary place 
where you are punished until God's love wins out and he lets you in heaven. This is where the thinking of the people earlier is completely wrong. They're right that the Christian life is, is hard, but they're wrong about it being temporary. The Bible tells us unequivocally that hell is an everlasting punishment. And that Jesus is saying that it is the just punishment. It is the exact punishment that your sins deserve to be tormented in hell for all eternity. In Revelation 27 verses 7 through 14, we are told that Satan's last rebellion against God, he gathers up all the nations, they come to fight. But before they can do anything, fire comes from heaven and they're all destroyed. We're told that God takes Satan and casts him into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And in following this, we see the great white throne judgment. And anyone's name who is not found in the book of life is likewise thrown into the exact same lake of fire to receive the exact same punishment day and night forever and ever. Time and again, Jesus goes out of his way to warn people that hell is eternal. It is eternal, unending torment. And it is the exact and perfectly appropriate punishment that we all deserve for rejecting Christ. Rejecting Christ and making yourself sin comes like judgment. How can we know this is all true? Jesus has laid this all out. Think about what the disciples are at this point in time. They haven't seen the crucifixion yet. And this is amazing. You know, Jesus knew how he was going to die. It wasn't a, a mistake that he used the illustration of picking up the cross. He was preparing the disciples to know exactly what they would be needing to do in their own life as they watched how he had to do it himself. You know, he had to do it literally. Thankfully, most of us, I don't think any of us, would probably be crucified. A couple of the disciples were. But thankfully, that's not something we're going to have to worry about. So while Christ did it literally, he was showing figuratively what we need to be ready to do. But how can we know? Because they hadn't seen that yet. So how can we know that what he's going to say is true? Well, we know because, reading from verse 28, and this is point four in our outline, the proof that Christ should be your king. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this was the method God established for the prophets. And this is back in the Old Testament. Uh, and this is what he established in Deuteronomy 18.20. He said, if someone gives you a message and they say it's from me, they're going to tell you something that's going to happen soon. And if that thing does not come to pass, they are not speaking in my name, they shall die. That was his criteria. So it's supposed to be a very high bar to be a prophet. <laughs> you claim to be a prophet, you claim to be speaking from God, you better be right. So Jesus states that the proof of what he's saying is true is because there will be people, the disciples who are there listening to his message, who would see him coming in his glory. Now there's two possibilities of what he meant for this. The first is this is talking about John, who gets his vision in Revelation, where he literally sees Jesus seated on his throne in the new heaven and the new earth. John 100% saw the coming of the glory of Christ. There's a second possibility, and that is it was referring to the three disciples who were able to witness Jesus being transfigured up on the Mount of Olives. Now, it's probably that one. I'm not going to say 
that uh, I'm not going to say, well, if anyone who believes it was John's vision, they're wrong. The, the Bible doesn't count and say it. But one verse from now, we're going to read about the transfiguration. And seeing how the entire point of the book of Matthew is to prove that Christ is the king, when he says, this is how you're going to know it, oh, and here's me showing it, I, I think there's a good case to make that the transfiguration is probably what Jesus was saying. And because these three disciples first-hand witnessed exactly what Jesus said would be the proof, this is how we can have confidence that when Jesus says you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him, you should, in fact, deny yourself, put aside your own wants and desires to the point that you're ready to crucify who you are just so you can follow after him. So how can we apply this passage to our lives? It's one application, guys. It's just one this week. It's super easy. You ready? You deny yourself. You pick up your cross. You follow Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this evening and for the freedom to boldly meet without fear of death. We lift up to you our brothers and sisters around the world who at this very moment are facing the very real threat of death and torture for their faith in you. Lord, I pray that we would stand firm in you as they are standing firm in you. That when we are faced with the question of pursuing our own desires and pleasures this world has to offer, or following you, we would deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow after you. Lord, we pray that you would help us be bold ambassadors for you, giving us courage to preach the gospel in, in season and out. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name.